This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. So let's turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10 the story of blind Bartimaeus. And we have a nice short story. I'm not trying to ram 30 or 40 verses down your throat this afternoon. We have the time to linger on this wonderful story of the healing of the blind beggar Bartimaeus. So we are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, at verse 46. And you'll see the words on the screen over there. Listen to the word of God with me. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the word of the Lord. So here we are in the Gospel of Mark, and we are approaching the very last week of Jesus' life. Time is drastically slowing down. Jesus is no longer in Galilee. He's been making his way south along the Jordan River, bypassing the land of Samaria, and he's leaving the city of Jericho. Jericho, of course, is a famous Bible city, isn't it? In fact, it's probably the world's oldest city, going back possibly to 9,000 BC, a very ancient city. And of course, we know it from the Bible because of the famous story of Joshua leading the people of Israel across the Jordan, and they march around the city seven times. On the last day, they blow their trumpets and the walls fall down, as every Christian child knows. Here, God had stretched forth his mighty arm and conquered the city as the people watched, trusting completely in him, helpless in their own resources, as God did something awesome that the people of Israel would be celebrating and singing about for generations down to this very day. And Jesus is leaving, he's about to leave this historic city. Jericho is pretty much the last stop on the way to Jerusalem. Jericho is below sea level. Jerusalem is high above sea level. It's only 15 or 20 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem, but it is a long and tortuous hike up through the mountain gorges to the heights that Jerusalem sits upon. And every year, as Passover came, and it's only a week away, 
throngs of pilgrims would pass through Jericho and its gates and set out on the last leg of their journey. And they would be singing traditionally the Psalms, the Songs of Ascent from the Book of Psalms, 15 songs that they would be traditionally singing as they approached Mount Zion. And there, sitting at the gate, at this choke point where all these pilgrims are pressing through, is this man, this blind beggar named Bartimaeus. He is blind. That means that he is helpless and weak. He cannot perceive what is going on around him. He's sitting in the darkness. And this man, as a blind person, is totally dependent on other people. He's dependent on them for charity. He cannot support himself. He's dependent on them for guidance. He cannot grope his way to where he needs to go. He needs other people to take him by the hand and direct him on his path. And he needs to trust in other people for protection. Because as a blind person, he is totally vulnerable to others. He's blind and he is a beggar. He doesn't have the fortune to be a blind but rich person, part of a wealthy family where he can be taken care of. He's on his own, totally at the mercy of generous people walking by. And Mark tells us that Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. It's just the Hebrew bar means son. He's the son of Timaeus. And Timaeus is a Greek name that means honor. Here is Bartimaeus, whose name literally means son of honor. And of course, as a blind beggar, he is doubly without honor. He is at the very bottom rung of society. He's stigmatized and he's looked down upon. He has no status and no standing. And he has no resources of his own. He's totally dependent on other people. So every night when he curls up in some doorway with his cloak wrapped around him, whether he's going to sleep with a somewhat full stomach or an empty one depends completely on whether people were generous to him that day or not. This is Bartimaeus' situation. And he's sitting outside the gate where all these people are pressing through. It's a prime begging location. And beggars, of course, always find the places where people are, right? Where people are disposed, where people are populated, and where they're disposed to be generous. Near where I live, there is one old lady asking for money right by the TBC bank machine. So you're there, you've just withdrawn several hundred lari, and she's right there, very strategically, in case you have a little bit extra you'd like to spare. There's another one who sits right outside the spar. So when you've bought your groceries and you have some extra change in your hand, there she is, ready to receive it from you. And of course, beggars are always sitting outside the church gates here, aren't they? These old ladies with their shawls on, sitting right outside the church gate so that a pious person will remember, oh, I have a duty to give alms, to give charity, and there this person is to receive it. And so here Bartimaeus and other beggars, Matthew, in fact, tells us there were two beggars. Bartimaeus is obviously the more memorable and dominant one. There were probably all these beggars sitting in a line by the side of the road outside the gate. And this is prime begging season because all these Jewish pilgrims are coming through this gate. They're on their way to Jerusalem. They're singing songs of worship. And this is the time to remind them that according to the law of God, they had a duty. They had an obligation to care for the poor 
and the blind and the beggars in their midst. And so Bartimaeus and his friends are there asking for alms from these people. And there Bartimaeus is sitting. He is blind, but he uses the faculties that he does have. His eyes might not work, but his ears do. And here is what he's picked up. Here's what Bartimaeus has heard. He has heard about some prophet, some wonder worker from up in northern Israel named Jesus of Nazareth. And perhaps he heard this as he overheard travelers walking by sharing the gossip. Perhaps Jesus' fame and reputation had filtered down even to the very lowest dregs of society. Imagine these beggars and these homeless people sitting around a little fire by the railway tracks, talking, sharing the news about this strange Jesus person. Somehow, Bartimaeus has heard about Jesus. And you can imagine he was listening with very keen attention indeed about these wonders and miracles and stories of healing that Jesus had done. And I'm sure you can guess the stories that most intrigued him, the ones that he loved to hear repeated again and again. The stories, of course, about Jesus healing the blind. In Mark 8, we encountered the story of another blind person who was healed. And perhaps Bartimaeus had heard the story, and he queried and quizzed and interrogated people who had observed this happening and who had heard about it. So you're saying... This guy, Jesus, Jesus spat in his eyes? And he saw people walking around like trees? This is a very strange story. And then Jesus touched him again. And you can imagine Bartimaeus getting every possible detail he could find about these stories of Jesus healing people. Because guess what? In the Old Testament, there are many different accounts of healings and even of people being raised from the dead. But nowhere in the entire Old Testament does a blind person receive sight. And so this is very striking news indeed, that at last, at last, a prophet has arisen, more powerful than any prophet who has come before. And of all the things he's doing, he is healing the blind. Those who were born blind or those who became blind during their lifetime somehow, Jesus has the power to give them their sight back. And Bartimaeus clearly has some kind of framework to fit Jesus into, a set of expectations he has, because as we'll see, he calls him the son of David. As a blind man, of course, Bartimaeus could not read his Bible. He could not see the scriptures in front of his face. And therefore, of course, he could never truly be a holy, pious, and law-keeping person like all Jewish men aspired to be. But he could hear the scripture read. And you can imagine Bartimaeus sitting in some back corner in the synagogue in Jericho hearing these prophecies from Isaiah being recited. Stories of those who were blind, prophecies rather, of those who were blind who would receive healing. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42, for example. There's this prophecy about some servant that God is going to raise up. 
his chosen one who will have the Holy Spirit poured out on him. And in Isaiah 42, verse 7, this servant of the Lord is going to open eyes that are blind. He is going to free captives from prison and to release from darkness, though to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And perhaps on that Sabbath, everyone else in the synagogue, that verse just kind of went over their head. They yawned. They'd heard it before. It did not trigger anything within them. But blind Bartimaeus sitting in the back, you can be sure that his ears pricked up. Because there, in Isaiah, was a prophecy directed towards a class of people of which he was a member. God had special prophecies and special promises, especially for those who were sitting in the darkness of blindness. And Bartimaeus must have seized on to these prophecies. And in Isaiah, of course, we also see the servant described as someone being the root of Jesse, someone descended from the line of David, a son of David who will sit on David's throne one day and rule in righteousness and justice. The golden age of David is not completely cold and dead. The Jewish people were expecting at long last that dead line was going to produce an heir, someone who would be worthy of the greatness of David and Solomon. And so these are sort of the background expectations that were in Bartimaeus' mind, surely. And what is more, what is quite intriguing is that in the first century, in the time of Jesus, there was this tradition, there was this legend that David's son Solomon was not only the wisest and wealthiest of kings, the Jews of that time also believed that he had healing powers. That Solomon, of all the kings, had the power to touch someone and bring healing. And so son of David may also have this kind of healing expectation. And so here's Bartimaeus. He's sitting by the side of the road. He's heard rumors of Jesus. And now, as this large crowd surrounding Jesus comes through the gates he realizes somehow that at the center of the crowd is this very Jesus of Nazareth. And so Bartimaeus seizes his chance. Jesus has not come this way before, and for all Bartimaeus knows, he may never come this way again. It's now or never. And so Bartimaeus begins to shout. He cannot use his eyes but he can use his ears and he can use his lungs. And boy, does he use them. He shouts. It's a loud cry. He's bellowing out with all the sound that his lungs can produce. This is no time for politeness. No time to quietly slip up your hand and hope no one notices. No time to politely <clears throat> clear your throat and hope that you draw Jesus' attention. He wants to be darn sure that Jesus knows that he is there at the side of the road. And so Bartimaeus begins to shout with all of his might. And not just once, because Mark tells us that he begins to shout. So he's going on, shouting and shouting and shouting. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's yelling repeatedly to get Jesus' attention. And this blind beggar must have had a powerful set of lungs because the crowd starts to rebuke him. Many people, in fact, not just one or two people, but pretty much the whole crowd 
turns on Bartimaeus and rebuke him, and they tell him to be quiet. They're all there. These pilgrims have had the tremendous luck to have Jesus of Nazareth, this wonder worker in their company, going up to Jerusalem. And they're all pressed around Jesus on their tiptoes, and they're trying to overhear some chance word that he might drop, expressing the fulfillment of some prophecy or speaking of some marvelous deed he's about to do. And here's this stupid beggar drowning out all sounds with these yells and these cries. This, bug, this, this beggar screaming in the dust is starting to get extremely annoying. So everyone in the crowd is telling him, shut up, shut up. We don't want to hear you. Be quiet. This is nothing more than a blind beggar. And he deserves to be shunted off to the side to know his place and to be quiet. It's not the last time that religious people have tried to shove disabled people to the side. It's not the last time this has happened. Because you know what? Disabled people, they can make us feel a little uncomfortable, can't they? They can make us feel a little bit awkward. And they remind us how little we've done and can do to help them. And when we feel like we're getting on pretty well as a church and the power of God is here and we've got everything under control and there are five people in wheelchairs sitting at the front, that makes things not look so good for us and our sense of control. And we tend to perceive the disabled as an embarrassment and as a burden. We are all tempted to treat those who are not quite as well off as we are and who make us feel embarrassed and uncomfortable. And we can assume that even Jesus' 12 disciples were in the crowd telling this beggar to shut up. They didn't want little children near Jesus. They didn't want this kind of awkwardness. They felt like Jesus needed to be protected. This whole crowd, after all, sees Jesus as this exhilarating messianic leader on his way to Jerusalem the royal city of David. And they are expecting him to step forward, to seize the throne, and to lead a war of liberation against Rome. He does not have time to deal with loud, annoying, rude beggars. And we need security to show up and take care of this guy so that Jesus is no longer troubled. So Bartimaeus is hardly being encouraged in his quest to find Jesus. He is being loudly rudely and severely discouraged. But you know what? He's a beggar. He is used to rude people. I'm sure the rich young ruler that we encountered a week or two ago, never in his life had anyone tell him to shut up and go to the side. But Bartimaeus surely is used to this kind of treatment. He is used to rude words, and he has no honor left to lose anyways. He's already at the very bottom. He's blind, and he's a beggar. What can these people possibly do to him anyways? So, rather than being embarrassed and blushing with shame and slinking back to his place at the side of the road, the harsh words of the crowd, in fact, spur Bartimaeus to shout even louder. But he shouted all the more. They provoked him. They poked him. They, they pushed him to shout even louder. And so he, so he starts yelling for Jesus at the top of his lungs, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. This is what Bartimaeus' cry, his screech is all about. A cry for mercy. 
most of us are not used to asking for mercy. Because mercy is what you ask for when you have no claim left. You have no reason, no justification for what you're asking. You are just flinging yourself on someone's mercy. And mercy is just compassion shown to someone in distress who deserves and has no claim to favorable treatment. When I was in university, I took this New Testament class. This was a long time ago, 18 years ago or something. And I took this New Testament class, and it was an intro to New Testament class. I felt like I pretty much knew everything anyway, so I showed up for the midterm, and then I just skipped the rest of the classes. It was pretty foolish and arrogant of me. I thought, I'll just show up for the final, I'll read the material, and we'll be good. Then in one of my other classes, I overheard some of my fellow students talking about getting their marks back for the second midterm. I thought there was only one midterm. There was a second midterm. I had not read the syllabus carefully that I had missed out on, and I was about to get a zero for. And so the next morning, I went to that class. I went up to the professor, who I'm sure did not recognize me, and I said, I missed the midterm. And I had no reason I could give, no excuse I could give. My missing the midterm was actually deeply shameful and stupid of me. And he paused, and he gave me a piercing look. And he said, okay, you can take the midterm if you take it right now in the back of the class. And thank God I squeaked through that midterm. But in that moment, I was purely dependent on someone else's mercy. I did not like that feeling. Does anyone enjoy being at someone else's mercy? Where you have no leverage, no arguments you can use, no fat wallet you can pull out and pay your way through the situation, completely at someone else's mercy. And so mercy is the last thing we ask for when we have exhausted every other possible course of action, and mercy is the only option we have left. Bartimaeus knows that he is not capable of self-help. Self-help. He cannot do it. He cannot fix a situation. He cannot come up with a cunning solution and manage and maneuver his way out of his problem because he is blind and he cannot cure his blindness. This is not a problem he can solve. And so it's intriguing comparing Bartimaeus to that rich young man we encountered a, couple, uh, a few verses ago. Remember that man came up to Jesus, noting his accomplishments, listing off, I have obeyed everything that there is on the law of God. What else do I need to do to be saved? If there's one last thing, just let me know, and I will do it to be saved. This is not what Bartimaeus is doing at all. He is crying out to God for mercy. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, if you study those cries for mercy, have mercy on me, that is a sentence that is only ever directed to God. Never in the Old Testament does someone ask another human being for mercy. Mercy is something that is always directed towards God. The God who shows mercy on whom he will show mercy and compassion on whom he will show compassion. God is the God of mercy. And have mercy on me, O God, might sound a little familiar to you because it comes from the Psalms of David. Think of that famous Psalm 51 where after David had sinned with Bathsheba and Nathan had come to him and David had felt deeply convicted 
Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David in that moment is in a situation of guilt and shame. He has no leverage with God and he must throw himself completely on the compassion and love and mercy of his covenant God. Even King David, glorious as he was, noble as he was, the very man after God's own heart, even King David needs to cry out to God for mercy. But Jesus is not the one crying out for mercy. He is the one to whom the cry is being directed. And there's this implication here that in the beggar's cry, that Jesus is someone much greater than David, that Jesus has some divine quality. He's not the one crying out for mercy. He's the one who dispenses mercy with divine generosity. There's a famous photograph from 1920 of King George V of the United Kingdom. And he's in a carriage. He's wearing a top hat. He's with two other men. This beautiful black carriage. They're wearing elegant clothes. And alongside the carriage is running a beggar. He has a shaved head. He's wearing an overcoat that's somewhat ragged and too large for him. His shoes are very worn. And he's running beside the carriage holding out his hat. It's right under the nose of Prince Henry. And all three men are studiously avoiding the beggar. And you can feel the embarrassment and the awkwardness of the king and his royal companions as this beggar intrudes upon them. But here in our story, even though everyone else in the crowd, disciples included, are yelling rudely at this beggar to shut up and know his place, Mark tells us, Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. What gracious words those are in verse 49. Jesus stopped. Here he is. He's on his way to Jerusalem to meet a terrible fate. Jesus alone knows that he is going to die. The disciples should know, but they have suppressed that knowledge and kept that from themselves and convinced themselves that something wonderful and exciting is about to happen. Jesus knows that he is about to mount up that road to Jerusalem to ascend to his crucifixion. And if anyone could be excused for ignoring a clamoring beggar in that moment, surely it would be Jesus. Surely Jesus had far weightier and heavier matters to occupy his mind. But even as Jesus is on his way to the crucifixion, his ears are attuned to the cry of distress. Jesus' ears are never deaf to the voice of the helpless, and he hears this beggar, and he stops. And um, as Edwards, the commentator, James Edwards notes, how remarkable it is that the Son of Man allows the cries of a poor and powerless man to stop him in his tracks. Kings don't stop for beggars normally. But this king pauses in his way. Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark, has all the time in the world for children, for a woman with hemorrhages, for the lepers and the lame, and he has all the time in the world for blind Bartimaeus. So the king 
stops, and he says to the crowd, call him. Call that man. Bring him over here. And the crowd instantly changes its mood, doesn't it? Here they are. First they're shouting, shut up, and then they're shouting, cheer up to this man. And it's kind of an ominous foreshadowing of the fickleness of the crowds in the Gospels. And the crowd that in our next passage is going to be shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, will soon be shouting, crucify. And so the crowd says to Bartimaeus, uh, cheer up, cheer up, take heart, have courage. He's calling you, get on your feet, go to him. Come on, come on, come on. And Bartimaeus flings his cloak to the side, Mark tells us. He throws his cloak to the side. And for a beggar, the cloak was the outer garment. It was one of the only possessions this man would have owned. He used it to keep the winds from chilling his body. He would have wrapped himself with it in some doorway at night. And while he was begging, he would have spread the cloak on his lap or at his feet as kind of a pouch for people to fling coins into so he could find them. And he is so excited to see Jesus, he just flings his cloak to the side and the little coins that he's collected go rolling and jingling into the road and he leaps to his feet to see Jesus. What a contrast to that rich man who went away sad because he was a wealthy man and he did not want to obey Jesus' call to give up everything he had to follow him. Bartimaeus gives up everything he has, small as it is, a cloak that the rich man would have scorned to own himself. Nevertheless, it is pretty much all that Bartimaeus has, and he flings it to the side, unconcerned, so that he can see Jesus. He literally jumps at the chance to see Jesus. He springs to his feet, and somehow, guided by the crowd or the sound of Jesus' voice, he makes his way so he can stop in front of Christ. And as he stands there, Jesus looks at him, and he has one question for Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And it is striking the dignity with which Jesus treats Bartimaeus. He does not see him as some embarrassing disabled person or as a lowly beggar. Jesus treats him as a person, not as a problem. And he looks Bartimaeus in the face and asks, So, here you are, you've been calling out, now you're standing before me, what would you like me to do for you? It's the most important question that God can ask us. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks all of us. Do we know the answer to that question? Is there a need that is pressing on our hearts? Because Bartimaeus does not fumble for some pious response. Oh, what is the correct spiritual thing to say here so that everyone thinks that I'm a good Christian? There is no hesitation, no pause at all for Bartimaeus because he knows exactly what he needs. Rabbi, I want to see. I want to see. He calls Jesus, in fact, not literally rabbi, but rabboni my rabbi, and it's only used one other time in the Gospels. Do you remember? Rabboni. Mary Magdalene uses it about Jesus after the resurrection. It's a term of deep reverence that no one else in the Gospels ever calls Jesus except for Mary Magdalene and Bartimaeus. 
And he says, Rabboni, I want to see. He knows that Jesus owes him nothing. He has been crying out for mercy, so he does not bring with his request some justification, some reasons, some merits, just the naked request, Rabboni, I want to see. And of course, we've just heard that question of Jesus, what do you want me to do for you, earlier in this chapter. It's what he asked James and John when they came to Jesus with their request. And their answer was, we would like to sit with you on your right and at your left in glory. They were thinking of all they had done for Jesus and what they could achieve and earn from him. Bartimaeus is not asking for something so prideful or glorious. He's not asking for something extraordinary at all. He just wants the ordinary blessing of sight. And so he says, Rabbi, I would like to see a plain, simple, straightforward request from Jesus. And so Jesus responds and says, okay, go, go. Your faith has healed you. And immediately Bartimaeus receives his sight. This is the very last healing miracle in the Gospel of Mark. We have had a lot of exciting miracles as we've journeyed our way through these first 10 chapters. The deaf receiving their healing and the lame being cured and the lepers having their skin made whole again. And Bartimaeus' healing is the very last healing miracle that Jesus does on the way to the cross. And in fact, we're told very little in the story of how the miracle happens. There's no spitting, there's no mixing of mud, there's, Matthew tells us that Jesus touched, touched his eyes, but we know almost nothing about the healing miracle itself. What Jesus does tell Bartimaeus is this, your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. Trusting and trusting me is what makes the difference for Bartimaeus. Now, we need to be very clear when we hear that statement, your faith has healed you, which Jesus uses, I think, six or seven other times in the Gospels. Jesus is not treating faith as some kind of independent power or force. Faith alone is nothing. It's about having faith in Jesus, about trusting Jesus. Imagine that you are drowning, and me being such a strong and mighty person, I jump in to the freezing waters and grab a hold of you. And in your panic, you start clutching at me and seizing me, and we're both about to go down. And I say in your, stop, stop struggling. You need to trust me right now and relax your muscles and let me save you. And so you do so. And we're back in the boat, dripping wet. I say to you, trusting was what saved you. Trusting was what saved you. But of course, that doesn't work for every drowning person. If you're in the middle of the ocean and you say, oh, I need to trust, and you relax all your muscles, you are just going to sink to the bottom, aren't you? Unless there's a strong person like myself there ready to grab a hold of you. Trusting is nothing without the person you are trusting in. And so Bartimaeus' trust would have done nothing except for the fact that Jesus was there, and Jesus was present, and Bartimaeus cried out to him as the mighty son of David, who had healing power. This is such an important lesson for us to take on board into our hearts, because so often we are tempted to look at our faith instead of at Jesus, 
at our hand that is reaching out instead of the one that we are reaching out to trust. Let me read you some words from Horatius Bonner. He was a Scottish pastor who died in 1889. He said this, Faith is not our Savior. It was not faith that was born at Bethlehem and died at Golgotha for us. It was not faith that loved us and gave itself for us, that bore our sins in its own body on the tree, that died and rose again for our sins. It wasn't faith that did any of those things. Faith is one thing. The Savior is another. Let us not confuse them, he writes, or ascribe to what is only a poor and imperfect act of man that which belongs exclusively to the Son of the living God. Faith is not Christ, he writes, nor the cross of Christ. Your faith is not the blood. It is not the sacrifice. It's not the altar or the mercy seat or the incense. Faith does not work. It accepts a work that was done ages ago. It does not wash. It leads us to the fountain opened for sin and uncleanness. And as faith begins, so it continues. It's always the beggar's outstretched hand, never the rich man's gold. It's always the cable, never the anchor, the knocker, not the door, the palace or the table. Faith is the lattice which lets in the light. It is not the sun. Our eyes should not be on our faith because even faith as tiny as a mustard seed is enough to save us if it is faith that reaches out and touches Jesus. Faith is not very complicated. Faith is simply trusting Jesus and trusting ourselves to Jesus to save us and to heal us when we are unable and even unworthy. That is all that faith is. Now, what's a little bit unfortunate about how the limitations of English is that the word heal here, your, word, your faith has healed you. In the Greek, heal and save are the same word. Heal, save. Sozo is the word. It could easily, just as easily be read, your faith has saved you. For Jesus, just, just as much for Paul, salvation is by faith. Physical and spiritual, it is all by faith and from the mercy of Jesus. So Jesus heals Bartimaeus and he tells him, go. It's the one command that Jesus gives him. Go, your faith has healed you. Depart. And in this case, beggars can be choosers. Bartimaeus is given the freedom to go wherever he wants to go. But there is no question in Bartimaeus' mind in what direction he is going to head. He follows Jesus. It's the last bunch of words in our text. He follows Jesus. The story begins with Bartimaeus at the side of the road, and it ends with him going along the road following Jesus. You know, we have that other um, story of the blind man healed in chapter 8, and here we are in chapter 10, and in between, bracketed by these two stories of the healing of blind men, are the disciples trying but failing to perceive Jesus. And surely the way that Mark has structured this is trying to tell us something about discipleship. The disciples, despite their own pride and their own ambition, they too need to realize that in the end, they also are no more than blind beggars who need the miraculous mercy of Jesus to open 
their eyes. There's one other unusual thing about this healing story that's completely unique among all the healings in Mark and Matthew and Luke. We know his name, Bartimaeus. No one else gets a name in those three Gospels. The only other one is in John, which is Lazarus, of course. Bartimaeus has a name. The rich man, the powerful young ruler who had every advantage and went away sad because he did not want to follow Jesus, we don't know that guy's name. He has no name. He has been long forgotten to history. But this blind man, this beggar, this person without honor, is given honor in the Gospels because he is given a name. And I'm sure it was because Bartimaeus was known to the early Christians. He followed Jesus. He was a disciple. And can you imagine being in your small group in the church in Jericho or Jerusalem or wherever Bartimaeus ended up and him sharing his testimony about how Jesus had heard his cry of, of, for mercy and healed him. He does not go away sad. He follows Jesus. I'm sure he was leaping and dancing as the crowd trudges up the mountainside. He's behind Jesus praising God with all of his might. Commentators have some difficulty on classifying this story. Is this a miracle story or is this a call to discipleship story? And really it's both. It's a miracle story and a call story just like every conversion here. Every person here who, encount who has encountered Jesus and placed their trust in him, you have both a miracle story and a call to discipleship story. It is one story. And so in our little passage, Bartimaeus is a model of true discipleship. He actually demonstrates what discipleship is like for us far better than Peter, James, and John, and the other nine disciples, so far at least. And like Bartimaeus, we need to recognize who Jesus is. Like Bartimaeus, we must appeal to Jesus' mercy, not our own resources or obedience or religiosity, to Jesus' mercy and leave everything to follow Jesus along the road. The very last words of Martin Luther, the great reformer, were this. We are beggars. This is true. And then he died. That was the summary of the message he had from God. We are beggars. This is true. And for Martin Luther, those were not terrible words. Those were words of freedom. Because when we recognize that we are only beggars, we are opening ourselves up to the grace of God, which extends far beyond human abilities and human resources. We are beggars. This is true. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He has not changed. And he is still willing to stop dead in his tracks, to hit the brakes for anyone who's crying out to him for mercy. He's still willing to pause along the way for anyone reaching out their hand so they can touch the healing king. Our, our poverty and our blindness are not an indictment. God is not angry at us because we were poor and blind. They are an opportunity for us. They are an invitation for us to trust in Jesus' grace and Jesus' grace alone. So let's pray together, shall we? And join with Bartimaeus in crying out, Jesus, son of David, 
have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your compassion, according to your steadfast love, which, which has been from of old. Have mercy on us according to the person and work of Jesus, Son of David and Son of God. Lord, we so often say, like the church of Laodicea, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. And your Holy Spirit reminds us that we are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. We thank you that our need is not a barrier to you. should not be a matter for shame and for us hanging back, but it should prick and provoke us to shout all the more to see our need as an opportunity for the miracle of mercy. Lord, help us to confess as well that we are beggars. This is true. And also to confess that Jesus, the son of David, is full of mercy. He loves the blind. He loves beggars like ourselves. Forgive us for our foolish pride, O Lord. Forgive us for trusting in anything but your mercy, which you have shown to us so richly in your Son, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.